Nothing nurtures the world above better than the soil below, and that's why I am so excited to introduce you to Coast of Maine. Coast of Maine is an organic soil brand that offers a full range of products designed to cover all of your garden and lawn needs. In years past, my vegetable garden, I neglected the soil and I didn't have much yield. If your soil lacks appropriate nutrients for success, your garden may not succeed. And so this year, I am so excited to cultivate the soil before planting the plants with Coast of Maine's organic products. Coast of Maine believes in nurturing relationships with local retailers, so next time you're at your local retailer, look for Coast of Maine products. Get growing. Visit coastofmaine.com to find a local retailer near you, coastofmaine.com. If you've been paying attention, you've likely heard something about gut health and why zoning in on your gut health is so darn important. You need EQ's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense. It's a three-in-one capsule that supports your digestive health and promotes gut barrier protection. I started taking EQ's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense because I have a bloating problem, friends. Yes, I do. Inflammation is not my friend. Since taking one capsule a day on an empty stomach with water, I have noticed more energy, improved skin, and here's the big one, reduced bloating. Head to myeq.com and use code SUSTAINABLE for 15% off Equilibria's microbiome defense and so much more. That's myeq.com and use code SUSTAINABLE at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. Well, hello there and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you are listening to episode 187 of the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast. On today's show, we are discussing all things related to palm oil. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news, you have likely heard about palm oil's rise in recent years. In fact, up to 50% of the products in the average American grocery store contains some form of palm oil. On today's show, I am speaking with award-winning author Jocelyn Zuckerman. Jocelyn's out with a new book called Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. And what I love about my conversation today with Jocelyn is that even if you are a listener who thinks you have done your palm oil research, you know everything there is to know about palm oil, I'm willing to bet that Jocelyn is going to impart some additional knowledge onto you today because she traveled to four continents studying palm oil's rise as well as the environmental and ethical implications associated with its rise. Jocelyn, I am so thrilled to have you on the show today. How are you? I'm good, Stephanie. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, I really enjoyed reading your new book, Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. I'm so excited to pick your brain about palm oil. But before we do that, I'm curious, how did you find yourself interested in this topic and ready and willing to travel the world researching it? 
So I didn't really set out to do that. A couple of years ago, I traveled to Liberia. I was actually reporting another story. It was about land grabs. You might remember around 2008, there were the food and fuel crisis. There were lots of protests around the world because food prices had risen. And in the aftermath of that, agribusiness and investment banks, sovereign wealth funds, were buying up big swaths of fertile land in faraway places where maybe the governance isn't so great and traditional land rights are sort of easy to exploit. So that was the phenomenon that I set out to explore. I traveled down to Liberia. I got there and found that these companies had just cut down massive amounts of the tropical rainforest, kicked people off their land in order to plant oil palm. In some places, the oil palm was already growing. It was about a year, two years old. In other places, the, the rainforest had just been chopped down when I got there. I interviewed both folks who said they lost their houses, their grave sites had been destroyed, they didn't have anywhere to farm anymore, and then I also interviewed laborers who said, you know, the working conditions were awful. And so I was just, I was kind of astonished. I had spent 12 years as an editor at Gourmet Magazine, I'd written a bunch of articles about sort of food and the environment. And, I, you know, I had a vague idea about palm oil, something about Girl Scouts from years ago, orangutans, but I'd really never thought about it. And, like, I didn't know what an oil palm fruit or plant looked like. Anyway, I got back home and I thought, you know, I want to get to the bottom of this. So I started researching it, found out that the industry was, was already well underway in Southeast Asia. I started, I got some magazine assignments to enable, that enabled me to go to some of these places. And the more I learned about it, I thought, this is just, you know, this is massive industry. And this substance that Americans are eating a lot of and putting on our bodies, and we know nothing about it. And so I wanted to figure out what was going on. You mentioned there that you didn't know what an oil palm looked like. You didn't really know perhaps what palm oil was. So let's start there. What is the oil palm and how is palm oil extracted from the plant? So the plant is native to West and Central Africa. And it looks like a, like a coconut palm tree that you might see, you know, in the tropics, very tall, thin trunk. At least it is in, you know, where it's naturally grown. And then under the canopy are these big, they're probably about two feet in diameter, these big spiky bunches. And then inside those bunches are like hundreds of these little fruits, which are about the size of a date or maybe like a picture, sort of an elongated plum. And they're sort of shiny red orange. And so you, you knock down these big bunches from the trees and then you take this these fruits and you crush them. They actually give you two oils. So there's this orangey flesh that gives you palm oil. And then inside there's this white kernel and you crush that and you get what's called palm kernel oil. So those two oils then, you know, have been found applications in all sorts of different, as I think we said, foods and cosmetics and biofuels. One of the aspects of your book that really shocked me was the fact that you mentioned that palm oil or some part of the oil palm plant is found in about half of all the products in U.S. grocery stores. I just find that to be astonishing and not in, not in a good way. Was there consumer demand for palm oil or was that demand created by the industry? A better way to say that would be, how did palm oil in the span of just a few decades come to be so prevalent in our lives? Well, for one thing, it's, you know, it's very versatile. So it could find, you know, all these different applications. Part of it has to do with history. 
European planters originally took the plant from, from Africa and established plantations in what was then Malaya and the Dutch East Indies. They were also growing more rubber at the time. And when synthetic rubber came along, these planters were losing money on their rubber, so they planted more oil palm. And then when when independence happened, now present-day Malaysia and Indonesia, those governments had lots of really poor people. And so as poverty alleviation schemes in both countries, they cut down parts of the rainforest, gave them plots of land, oil palm, often rubber seedlings as well, and said, you know, grow these crops to have some livelihood. Then, you know, the industry basically just exploded from there. Post-war, the sort of catering business and processed food industry came along. And so I might be skipping a, a bit forward here, but it's 50% saturated fat. So it's it's really good for sort of manufactured baked goods because it's solid at room, semi-solid at room temperature. You don't have to hydrogenate it, which is what you have to do to liquid oils. And then from that, you get trans fats, which as we know, are not good for us anymore. Palm oil companies figured out how to fractionate, to divide up these two different oils into all sorts of different products with different properties and applicable to all these different uses. I definitely want to talk to you about the health effects or the potential health effects associated with having palm oil in so many of our edible products. We're going to get there. But before we get there, let's talk about the environmental implications associated with raising, cultivating and extracting palm oil. So they're pretty massive. As I said, it's native to West and Central Africa, and it grows best at 10 degrees to the north and south of the equator, which is a swath of land that corresponds with the planet's tropical rainforests. And as your listeners probably know, those ecosystems are massively important for sequestering carbon. They also support more than half the world's plant and animal species, including the great apes. The other very important environmental aspect is that a lot of tropical rainforests sit on top of peatlands. So these are like soils that have formed over thousands of years, basically waterlogged terrain where organic matter has accumulated. Indonesia, which is the world's number one producer of palm oil, also is home to the planet's largest concentration of tropical peatlands. So the palm oil companies... In order to plant on that land, they have to drain it first and then set it on fire. And when you do that, all of that carbon that's been accumulated for thousands of years is released into the atmosphere. So the annual carbon emissions from Indonesia's peatlands rival those of the entire state of California. That's in a year. So those two things are major environmental concerns. There's also a connection to pandemics. So something like 75% of today's emerging infectious diseases originate in animals. 60% of those can spread directly from animals. And over the past few decades, the number of these animal-to-human transmissions has skyrocketed. A third of these new diseases can be linked directly to deforestation and agricultural intensification, most of it involving tropical rainforests. So a lot of that is palm oil, also soy, we can imagine. Anyway, so cutting down these, these tropical rainforests sends these you know, virus-carrying wildlife like bats in search of new habitat because they've lost their forest, and that pushes them into closer contact with humans and just raises the, the likelihood that they're going to pass diseases to us. So we're raising massive acreage of tropical rainforests, which releases carbon into our atmosphere. We are also then, of course, because we're raising these rainforests, which capture carbon, we are doing a lot of 
detrimental things to our planet right then and there. In your book, you travel extensively and you bring the reader to a lot of indigenous people whose lives have been affected by the increase in popularity of oil palm. Is oil palm improving the quality of people's lives by and large or not? I would say absolutely not. There are some people in Indonesia and Malaysia who will say, yes, my my lifestyle or my income has improved. But in the grand scheme of things, their diets have generally not improved because they used to be, I mean, you know, I'm sort of making, would like to make a distinction that indigenous people who are really living in the forest, those are the ones that are really screwed because they're not involved in the industry. And in Liberia and in Indonesia, in both places, people said to me, you know, the forest was our supermarket. They got all their fruits, vegetables, roots, all their protein, right? They would hunt for animals in the rainforest, source their water, source their building supplies, source their medicines, everything from the rainforest. You cut that down. I mean, they're just screwed. They've got nothing left. And then you put plantations in there that use agrochemicals and their water supply basically, you know, is polluted. So they have trouble even sourcing fish. So their livelihoods are absolutely not improved. And then in many instances, the folks who lived on the land are not the ones who get the jobs on the plantations. People in different countries told me that the companies tend to bring in people from, you know, the other side of the country or in Malaysia in particular, they bring them from other countries. But like in Guatemala, they said they bring them from the other side. And they told me this in Indonesia as well, I think. So that they're sort of not, they, they don't speak the local language and they're, you know, they're at more of a disadvantage because they're not in a place that they're comfortable with anymore, which, which makes it easier for the companies to take advantage of them as workers. So even the, the folks who are living in the area, the plantation, often were telling me, you know, we're not the ones who are getting these jobs. They've sort of, they've ruined our homes and we're not even getting these plantation jobs that they told us were going to be so great. You had mentioned diet briefly in that response. And I want to go there next. We're going to talk about the rise of palm oil and the rise of worldwide obesity after a quick word from this week's sponsor. The Sustainable Minimalist Podcast is supported by Outrage and Optimism. The world has been experiencing a convergence of crises, None of us has been immune to the challenges of this moment in history. Some argue that the greatest of them all is the climate crisis, and few of us know what to do about it. Isn't it all just too big for any one of us? Outrage and Optimism is a lively weekly podcast in which hosts Christiana Figueres, former UN climate chief, and her partners Tom Rivet-Karnick and Paul Dickinson set out to help us navigate the complexities of tackling climate change. They talk to business leaders, politicians, scientists, and activists, and ask, what makes you feel outraged about climate change? What is there to be optimistic about? Don't wait. Subscribe to Outrage and Optimism on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts for new episodes every Thursday. And we're back with Jocelyn Zuckerman, author of the new book, Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. Jocelyn, you have an entire chapter on your book associated with the health effects of palm oil as it 
pervades humans' diets across the world. And in that chapter, I found it very interesting that you were in India. You mentioned that obesity has skyrocketed worldwide and that approximately 10% of the world's population is now considered obese. How does palm oil play into these alarming statistics? So, I mean, as you know, nutrition science is complicated and people go back and forth. Is it fats? Is it sugar? So I would say, and you know, is it because we're all sitting around in front of our computers? So there are lots, lots of factors at play, but I don't think people realize that, you know, we, we, most of us, I think, think that sugar is the main culprit for the world's weight woes. But in fact, refined vegetable oils have added far more calories to the global diet in the last half century than any other food group. So, you know, these are calories that aren't particularly healthy for us. Palm oil is 50% saturated fat. So these are calories that are coming in the form of ultra-processed foods or fried foods. So certainly that glut of unhealthy foods in the global diet isn't doing anybody any good. I'm going to ask you, you know, what can the average listener do to reduce their reliance on palm oil in their daily lives? And I'm wondering whether the answer is just as simple as eating less processed foods. But I feel like I need to ask you, because you have researched this topic so extensively, what, in your opinion, is it about palm oil that makes it so concerning? If you had to pick just one aspect to this multifaceted problem, what would it be? The environmental impact, carbon emissions and loss of biodiversity, because, you know, we, we screw this planet up and we are right on the verge of doing that, you know, irreparably. We all lose. Well, then that brings me to another question I had, which was the industry tantrums, as you call them in the book. <laughs> that I love that term, industry tantrums. And the industry tantrums tend to take place when a grocery store chain or even the European Union tried to stand up to the palm oil industry. Who's behind these industry tantrums and what are the political and financial forces that are keeping palm oil so relevant? So, well, in large part, it's the Malaysian government and the Indonesian government because their economies are, you know, really reliant on this crop. And another thing about palm oil is you plant it, you start harvesting after three years, and then that, that plant is good for about 25 years. So you put all this stuff in the ground and you want to get your value out of it. So if people start suddenly saying they're not going to buy your palm oil, you're going to be pretty mad. And then the, the consumer-facing companies like PepsiCo, Nestle, Procter & Gamble, you know, they're getting all this cheap oil to put in their products and they're making a lot of money because they, they can use this cheap oil. So there are a lot of interests that intertwine, you know, ensuring the status quo. So then this brings me to my most important question as a consumer, as a host of an environmentally friendly podcast. What can I do? What can my listeners do to reduce our consumption and reliance on palm oil? In daily life? So the main thing is not to eat too many processed foods because that's pretty mostly where you're going to find it in the food supply. And then in terms of personal care products, that's that's more of a challenge in part because the labeling can be really confusing. There's like 200 different terms that might show up on a label that actually mean that it's some form of the oil palm plant. So you might see PKO for palm kernel oil. You might see vitamin A palmitate 
stearic acid, palmitic acid, sodium lauryl sulfate, on and on and on. You know, personal care products and cosmetics, I believe, are about 7% of the industry. So if you're not avoiding that in, in those, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much. I think mainly the foods because they're, they're not healthy for you anyway. But I think even more than that is sort of getting involved, raising your voice, letting, the, letting these companies that are using palm oil know that you care, that they might be chopping down rainforests, or I hope we get to labor issues, that they might be human rights abuses involved in their sourcing. So I think you know, even if you're not eating a ton of palm oil, I think you can do a lot for the planet and for people on the other side of it by speaking, about, speaking out about this issue. You mentioned labor abuses there. Did you have a comment on that? So yeah, there's there's very serious labor abuses involved in the industry, and that is part of why palm oil is so cheap, right? If you're not paying a lot of people f- to do the work or giving them health care, then you know you're not spending a lot of money there that you can keep for yourself. So I did my main labor reporting in Honduras, where workers complained of long hours, really low wages no health benefits. They, they said they were actually paying into this system that was supposed to ensure them benefits. But then when they went to the clinic, they were, the people would say, no, sorry, you know, you need to pay for this. Inadequate safety gear, in particular because they're exposed to dangerous chemicals like glyphosate and um, chlorpyrifos. They had flimsy boots that they said that the snakes that gather in the around the trees could bite right through. And they had, some of them had goggles, but they said, they couldn't even wear them because they're in the tropics and they, you know, they fog up, so they, they couldn't see if they had them on. There was one guy I interviewed, so they used these long metal poles to to sort of bonk down the bunches from the, the tops of the trees. The harvesters, they used these long metal poles, so this guy had slid in the wet grass and his pole had tipped an electric wire and his his friend said his like body blew up in flames. So he, when I met him, he, his right arm had been amputated just below the elbow. He, he didn't show me his foot, but he said I think he had, only had two toes left. And but he did show me his other arm. You could see it was burnt all over. His other hand didn't work. They just sort of left it on so that he wouldn't be a double double amputee. And he had burns and skin grafts all over his body. So there's lots of you know occupational hazards, and then. In Malaysia in particular, so Malaysia has a, a much smaller population than Indonesia, but, it, but it's got a, a significantly higher standard of living. So Malaysians are not, tend not to be inclined to take low-paying plantation jobs. So Malaysia relies on more than 335,000 migrant workers from countries like India, Bangladesh, also Indonesia, and Myanmar to work on its plantations. And... There have been various reports of forced labor. So a lot of these folks, in particular from Bangladesh and Myanmar, are brought to Malaysia under false pretenses. So recruiters go into villages. They tell people, oh, we've got a great job for you in a restaurant or a hotel. You pay us this much, and then you can pay it back after from your great wages. And they take them on boats, traffic them in, put them in camps, often take their passports and then get them to plantations in you know squalid housing and don't pay them at all so that the the workers need to work off this money that they had paid the recruiters so and then there are also 
women and children often work on these plantations because there's a quota system, like you get paid for how much fruit you collect and, and maybe the man who's actually getting a, a wage for his work can't reach that quota just getting the fruit on his own. So he might bring his, his wife and his child to help clean, pick up these loose fruits that accumulate on the ground so that he can make his quota so that he can get his, his base salary. So last year, actually, the United States government announced that it was going to block shipments of palm oil from three major Malaysian producers over allegations just like this of forced labor, of child workers, and also physical and sexual abuse on plantations. So part of the thing is these plantations tend to be, some of them anyway, so remote. Like when I did my reporting, I would say fly into Jakarta and then fly up to Jambi in in Sumatra and then get in like a four-wheel drive and drive for eight hours to get, you know, out to some of these plantations. And so they're very far away from sort of the prying eyes of watchdogs and journalists and, and they can get away with a whole lot of stuff. Jocelyn, tell us about Planet Palm, where my listeners can find it. You can find it on my website, which is jocelynczuckerman.com. And there's a button there. There's actually a a U.S. version and a U.K. version. Some people like the U.K. version because it's got an orangutan on the cover. So you can choose it. I guess your shipping will be more. But, you know, in bookstores around the country. The book does a real deep dive. I read the U.S. version, no orangutan on the cover, but (laughs) real deep dive. We just covered the surface today. So, Jocelyn, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your breadth of knowledge on this incredibly important topic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate your interest. Listeners, I so hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jocelyn Zuckerman. I have linked to her new book, Planet Palm, in this week's show notes, which you can find at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 187. I have no news, no announcements, no listener questions, no eco tips, so I'm going to wrap it up and say I will see you next week. Have a great week and take care. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corian's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corian.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corian.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.